Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, again today. Romans chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 18 uh, through 25. I'm just going to be preaching on verses 18 through 23, but would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Uh, This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. And the grass withers and its flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That is how Jesus responded to Pilate when he was on trial and Pilate asked him if he was a king. Not only did Jesus affirm that he was a king, for this purpose I was born, but he affirmed that as a king, he was a king in truth that he was absolutely committed to the truth. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And I suspect that you might remember Pilate's now famous reply. What is truth? Pilate's response has been interpreted in different ways. Was it just the expression of a sincere desire to know what the truth was? Unlikely. Uh, Was it an irritated and indifferent reply to this screwed-up situation that he found himself in? Maybe. But I think most 
and myself included, interpret this as a somewhat cynical and dismissive insult based on a denial that truth can even be known. That response would certainly fit well in our contemporary culture, a culture which on the one hand denies the reality of all objective or absolute truth, and on the other hand, at the same time, tries to bring truth down to a level of subjectivity such that everyone has their own truth. That may be your truth, but it's not my truth. Let him speak his truth. But there is such a thing as objective truth. God delights in the truth. John Calvin once said, nothing is deemed more precious by God than truth. So what is truth? In short, truth is very simple. Truth is a statement that corresponds to reality. Truth is what accords with the way that things actually are. And the reason that truth is so important to God is because God is the creator and the one who has ordered reality. And so to distort truth is to make God a liar. But the Bible says that God cannot lie. He is the God of truth. All throughout the Bible, we are told repeatedly that he is the God of truth. Each of the three persons of the Trinity is called. Uh, in Psalm 31, the Father is called the God of truth. In John 1.14, Jesus is said to be full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, John 14.17. And the word of God is the word of truth. In the end, truth is that which is consistent with the mind and the character of who God is, because God is the truth. He is the living and true God. But while God is true, his creatures often are not. I remember watching one of the presidential debates in the last cycle, and one of the candidates said of another candidate, he has a complicated relationship with the truth. He wasn't quite ready to call this other candidate a liar, but he was making it clear that in his opinion, this other candidate had a way of misrepresenting facts to suit his agenda. In the realm of politics, we call that spin. In the realm of morality, we just call it lying. But if this passage makes anything clear to us today, it's that it's not just politicians who have a complicated relationship with the truth. It's all of us. It's all of fallen humanity who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so as we come today to sit under God's word of truth, I want to draw your attention to three things that we find here today. First, we find here a revelation from God. You see that word in verse 18. As we read of this revelation of God's wrath against all who suppress the truth, uh, secondly, we find here a responsibility toward God. 
We see that in verses 19 through 20 as we read of our inexcusable responsibility before God's self-revelation. And finally, we find here a rejection of God in verses 21 through 23 as we read of our intellectual and moral rejection of God's power and at the same time of our substitution of powerless gods in his place. There's a revelation from God, there's our responsibility to God, and there is our rejection of God. And the reason that I want to draw your attention to these three things this morning is because I think they highlight for us our very desperate need for the gospel. You'll notice that's the title of the sermon. Our need for the gospel. That is what Paul is showing us. You might remember that is where we left off last week, talking about the gospel and Paul's passion for the gospel. And we saw that the reason that he was so passionate about the gospel was because he understood that the gospel, that is to say this message of good news about who Jesus is and what he has done, that this message is God's own power for salvation. And the reason that the message is the power of God unto salvation is because it reveals to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It reveals a way of righteousness which is not only approved by God, it meets his standard, but it is one that comes to us as a gift from God. It is a righteousness from God to be received by faith. And I want you to see today, as we move on from verse 17 now to verse 18, the little word for that connects these verses together. I also want you to see there's a connection because of the theme of revelation. In verse 17, Paul speaks of this revelation of the righteousness of God. But now in verse 18, he speaks of a revelation of the wrath. Of God. And I want you to see this link because you need to see what Paul is doing. He loves the gospel. He loves it because it's God's power. And now he's telling us why. Because we so desperately need it. And so let's first look at this revelation that comes from God. In verse 18, we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I think I'm probably on safe ground to say that the topic of the wrath of God is not exactly a popular topic. It's also not an easy topic. And while it may not be popular and while it may not be easy, it's necessary. It's necessary as the backdrop for the gospel, as the context for the gospel. It is against this black backdrop of the wrath of God that the resplendent glory of the gospel, like a diamond, shines all the more brightly. And so just keep that in mind as we talk about God's wrath today. If it makes you uncomfortable, it's supposed to. But it's supposed to make you uncomfortable that God might himself come and comfort you with good news. 
when we talk about the wrath of God, we're of course talking about his disposition towards sin. The wrath of God is that righteous expression of his anger and his outrage against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's his just opposition and his just condemnation of everything that is contrary to his holy nature. And we can think about many different biblical examples of the way that God's wrath has been revealed in history. You just think through the course of biblical history, some are probably coming to mind. Right away at the early chapters of Genesis, as man is expelled from the garden, And that leads up to the flood of Noah and then to the judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to his plagues that are poured out on the land of Egypt, to the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of Israel from her land. You might also think forward in time to that final expression of God's wrath that will be revealed on the day when Christ comes again to judge the world in righteousness. The book of Revelation speaks of the fury and wrath of God and describes that wrath as being so terrible that people will actually cry out to the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And note that it is the wrath of the Lamb. It is Jesus, the Savior of sinners, who in that day comes in flaming fire to judge the world. I was listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson, and he quoted Thomas Boston. He said that to be damned by the one who came to save sinners is to be doubly damned. But we must not think for a moment that God's wrath is something like our wrath. We must not think that God's anger is arbitrary. We must not think that his wrath is capricious. It's not. God's wrath is based on the perfections of his own holy character. It is because God is eternally committed to perfect righteousness that in his anger, he responds with outrage against sin. And so he must. I mean, just think, if the shocking and the appalling events of the past several weeks have caused anger to well up in people, the slaughter of innocents, the burning and beheading of babies, the bombing of civilians. Atrocities on both sides. If these things have created a moral outrage among men whose hearts are capable of the same kind of wicked deeds, how much more do these sorts of sins cause a moral outrage in the heart of the very God whose being defines morality? If in the end there is no final reckoning, no final recompense, no punishment for sin, if people just get away with things, how could God be a God of perfect righteousness and justice? How could he be truly worthy of worship? 
but God is worthy of worship. God is just. And because he is just, he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And he's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. And so the wrath of God is not something to be taken lightly. It is not something to be scoffed at. But we would be wrong to think that the wrath of God is only a reference to that final judgment. What the Bible says here is that the wrath of God is revealed. It uses the Greek present tense. It indicates that this is something that is an ongoing reality, something that is not just to happen in the future. It is something that's happening now. God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And next week, we'll see uh, more about how that wrath is presently being revealed. But let me just give you a summary of it. God's wrath is presently being revealed as he is giving people over to the idolatry of their hearts and to their passions. Paul uses this sobering phrase three times. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. Verse 24. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verse 26. Since they did not acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You do not want God to give you up. One commentator I read says, this was from Matthew, and I just recalled it. He said that in the Bible, a handing over by God is the single most appalling thing that can happen to a human being. I might add to that, not just to an individual human being, but to human society, to human culture. It has often been my prayer when I have fallen into cycles of sin in my own life or when I have counseled others who are walking in patterns of sin to pray earnestly that God would not hand you over to your sins. That he would not give you over to this futility of your thinking. That he would not give you over to these passions. And Paul says that the reason for this revelation of his wrath is because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As sinners... We have a complicated relationship with the truth. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, exchanged the truth of God for a lie in the garden. That has been our default MO ever since. We suppress the truth. We hold it down or we hold it back. If you want a helpful summary of the ways that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness in our relationships, just take a look at what the Westminster Larger Catechism has to say about the Ninth Commandment. It's two pages of all the ways in which we prejudice the truth in our dealings with others. The way we use truth unseasonably as a weapon. Uh, The way that we pervert it to a wrong meaning. The way that we use equivocal expressions. Lying, slandering, tail-bearing, whispering, flattering, aggravating the small faults of others. Hiding the truth 
excusing sin, countenancing an evil report. That's just like an eighth of all the things that they talk about. The ways in which we we actually prejudice the truth and suppress the truth. But here the emphasis is not just on our suppression of truth with each other. Here the emphasis is on the suppression of God's truth in our own heart and mind. We're not true with ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We hold down the truth in our own lives. How do we do this? Verse 21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish heart was darkened. We'll come to that verse in a moment, but before we do, we need to understand first the next thing that Paul says is that there is not only this revelation of God's wrath. He says next that we are responsible to God. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. You see, God does not judge people for what they do not know. He judges people for what they do know. The biblical witness is that God has made himself known ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Every single aspect of creation, from the sun and moon and stars above to the depths of the deepest oceans, from the birds that call out in the morning from the sky to the animals that are roaming the earth, from the highest heights to the deepest depths, right? From the structures of the furthest galaxy to the structures of that tiny cell. God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. It's interesting in Greek, he says they've been clearly seen. There's there's something oxymoronic. The invisible God, the invisible attributes are clearly visible to man. Not with his eyes, but perceived in his heart and mind. And it goes without saying, or it should, that among the things that God has made is man himself. Even if all of the world around him was silent, man's own self-awareness and consciousness and conscience as a creature made in the image of God would give sufficient knowledge of the Creator. I like to think of it this way. I heard Lane Tipton say this years ago in a lecture that he said that when God created the world and he created mankind as his image, he placed them in a theater of revelation. It was way better than Dolby surround sound. Everything was revealing their creator. All of creation stands as a witness to his glory. This is the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech 
There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God has made himself known, but it's not just that God has made himself known. It's that this knowledge of God has been perceived. Man knows God. And it is because man knows God that he is without excuse. He's not responsible for what he does not know. He's responsible for what he knows. Think of that language of without excuse. When you give excuses for something, what are you doing? You're, you're attempting to minimize your responsibility. We're attempting to give some explanation for why it is that we are not to blame. And when he says that we are without excuse, he's not saying that we just can't come up with one. Now, I suspect you can come up with plenty of excuses. We are full of excuses. What he's saying here is that no excuse can stand up to the scrutiny of God's judgment. Before God's judgment, every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable to God. We need the gospel not only because of God's revelation. We need the gospel because we stand as those who are responsible before God. And that brings us to our final point today. The final reason we need the gospel is because of our rejection of God. Look at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here Paul is describing the sad consequence of our suppression of the truth. What happens when you suppress the truth that is all around you? You become futile in your thinking, and your foolish heart is darkened. However wise you may claim to be, you become a fool. One commentator made this comment that resonated with me. He said, one of the great tragedies of rebellious humankind is the sheer waste of God-given intellectual powers. The sheer waste of our intellect. I think about that all the time. I especially think about it when I, when I see others using their intellectual purpose or powers for expressly evil things, right? Um, Marianne and I had a, someone pulled a scam on us. We were buying something online. And we gave them a deposit. And then that account disappeared. Uh, never to be seen again. And you think of just like the scheming that went into this to set up this false account, to list something on Facebook Marketplace, and then to make up a reason why you couldn't get there, but I'll hold it for you if you give a deposit. 
if all those same energies and intellectual powers had just been put to good purposes, you could have easily made more than the 40 bucks we put down as a deposit. I think about it whenever I hear terrorists on television bragging about how cunning their scheme was to slaughter innocents made in the image of God. What a waste of God's gifts. I think about it when I listen to atheists lecturing college students, twisting logic and, and persuading them to doubt the revelation of God in nature and in their own hearts. The very breath they breathe and use to give those words is breath that comes from God himself. I think of what Paul says in the next chapter. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The suppression of God's truth only leads to intellectual futility and darkness of heart. And that darkness of heart is the fruit of man's rejection of God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks And instead, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice that the rejection of God is a matter of worship. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about not giving him honor and thanks. And Paul's really clear that there's two parts to this rejection. The first part is that we reject him when we don't give him the worship that he deserves. Although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. Just take a moment to reflect on the audacity of that fact. That the very creatures that God shaped and created in his own image, those in whom he breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, those who depend on him at every moment because in him we live and move and have our being, These same creatures go about living as though God did not exist at all. They give no thought to him in their lives. They simply refuse to acknowledge him. They don't ever think about his steadfast love. They don't ever consider his benevolence or care. They have no thought for his provision. One of my favorite quotes by John Piper is a reflection of his on the nature of sin. I've quoted it before, but I think this is a great place to use it. He asks the question, what is sin? And this is his answer. It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. That is the fruit of a darkened heart. 
It is the dishonoring of the eternal and immortal God and living a thankless life. But if that were not enough, Paul says it's even worse than that. Not only do we reject him by not giving him the worship that he deserves, but we turn around and give the worship that he deserves to other things that don't deserve it. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, things that have carved ears but cannot hear and carved eyes but cannot see and carved mouths but cannot speak. As he will say later, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We're stiff-necked. What were the Israelites thinking? Building a golden calf. An animal that makes fertilizer and chews the cud. And then bowing down to it and saying, this is our God. In part, it's probably because that's what the Egyptians did. The Egyptians were foolish. Their hearts were darkened. God had led them out of Egypt, and yet here they are making this image of God and becoming stiff-necked in the process. This is where a darkened heart full of futile thoughts turns because the heart of man is, as Calvin said, an idol factory. And Paul says, what you do every time you engage in idolatry, you are exchanging God's truth for a lie. And we should not think that Paul is saying that this is some group of sinners out there. He is making a general point about all of humanity. He's telling us our predicament so that he can tell us Again, how desperately we need the gospel. We need the gospel because we reject God. Because we refuse to honor him and give him thanks. And at the very same time, we give that honor and thanks to things that are not worthy of our worship. We need some good news, don't we? We need the gospel because we're responsible to God. God does not treat sin lightly. God does, does hold us responsible for the things that we know. And he has revealed all of these things throughout the world around us in our own consciousness and conscience. We know God, and yet we refuse to acknowledge him. We need some good news, don't we? We need the gospel because God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We desperately need some good news. 
You know, earlier we thought about many of the ways in which the wrath of God has been revealed throughout history. At the flood, at the exodus, at the exile. But you know, there is one particular manifestation of God's wrath that I didn't mention. There's one revelation of his wrath from heaven that stands out as so shocking and so horrifying that it makes all others pale in significance. There is one place where the wrath of God was revealed so profoundly, one time where his just anger was poured out so completely, one occasion where his outrage against sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness was unleashed with such fury that it literally made the cosmos tremble. The sun went dark and the earth quaked. I trust you know what occasion I'm talking about. It was, of course, that day when our Lord Jesus Christ handed himself over to the wrath of God for sinners. And did you know that that language that he handed himself over is that thing you don't ever want to happen to you. But he did that. He handed himself over to the wrath of God. He gave himself for those who wouldn't honor him or give him thanks. He gave himself for the very people who were actively exchanging God's truth for a lie. He gave himself, Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. You see, the revelation of God's wrath is the backdrop against which the revelation of his righteousness shines. The revelation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is for all who believe. Yes, the revelation of the wrath of God is sobering, stunning, scary. But the good news is that God is revealing in Jesus Christ a revelation of his righteousness for anyone who believes that whoever believes may escape the wrath and fury of God. A revelation of righteousness so pure that it receives God's absolute approval. There is nothing lacking in it. All that God has demanded, Christ has done. He has fulfilled God's law. Every single place where you have broken it, every, every time you have not done the thing you have should do, and every time you have failed to do, what you ought. God has provided a righteousness so pure that it is approved. It's a revelation of a righteousness so perfect that it satisfies all of God's demand. Think of all of the sins of your entire life. It's hard to think of just the sins of your entire week. Think of all of the sins of your entire life. Now think of all of the sins of everybody in this room. Now think of all of the sins of God's elect throughout all the world. 
The righteousness of God is so perfect that it satisfies God's wrath against all of those sins. It's a revelation of righteousness so propitious that it quenches his fury. And it is a revelation of his righteousness so pleasing that it actually changes dishonorable, ungrateful idolaters into loyal, loving, grateful worshipers of Jesus. If God as creator calls us to honor him and give him thanks, beloved, how much more does the gospel call us to honor him and give him thanks? May God grant that through the gospel we might become the kind of people who honor his glory, who revere his holiness, who admire his greatness, who praise his power, who seek his truth, who esteem his wisdom, who treasure his beauty, who savor his goodness, who trust his faithfulness, who obey his commandments, respect his justice, fear his wrath, cherish his grace, prize his presence, and love his person. That's why we need the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it is sobering to hear of your wrath revealed from heaven. But Lord, we remember how that wrath was revealed at Calvary. How that wrath was poured out upon the head of our perfect, blameless Savior. And how in his death, our death is counted. So that in his life, we might live to righteousness. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work even now in our hearts. Even as we reflect on our own sinfulness and the ways in which we have failed to give you what is due your name. Lord, remind us that Jesus gave everything that was due your name. And he now offers us this free gift of righteousness. Lord, help us to receive it in faith and to receive it with gratitude and thanksgiving and to give you in return the honor and the thanksgiving that is due you in all of our lives. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you're seated now, we come to the Lord's table, to this meal that Christ has given us. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks of this meal, he calls it the cup of blessing that we bless. I just love that turn of a phrase, right? This meal comes to us. It comes to, to those who receive it in faith. It comes as a cup of blessing, that you bless the Lord for giving it to you. But when you stop and think about that cup of blessing, you're immediately reminded that it is only a cup of blessing to you because it was a cup of cursing to Jesus. That it was on that same night when he was betrayed that he prayed, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There was no other way for this cup to become a cup of blessing unless Jesus drank that cup 
to the bitter dregs unless he drank that cup of cursing for us. And so as we come to this meal today, we should come with joy in our hearts. We should come blessing the Lord that he is so kind and so gracious. We should come with honor and giving thanks, right? That should be our attitude. And so let me encourage you today as these elements come to you, the bread and the wine which signify the body of Christ given in your place, handed over for you, and the wine signifying his blood which is spilled and poured out for you to to satisfy God's wrath. As these elements come to you, receive them with thanksgiving as a cup of blessing. But not everyone can receive these elements as a cup of blessing. You see, Paul also gives a warning. And that warning is to those who might partake of this in an unworthy manner. That is to say, to come to this in a manner where you are not resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. When you are not looking to the satisfaction that he's made. When you're trusting in something else. If you are trusting in anything else, do not come to this meal. And so, with that warning before us, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this glorious work. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come today, we are grateful to have been incorporated into your church, to have been baptized into your name, to have professed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can actually come to this meal. Having examined our hearts to know that we are in Christ as your word commands that we do. Lord, we pray then that having examined ourselves and knowing that we are resting and trusting in you and in you alone, Lord, we pray that you would pour out the riches of your grace upon us even as we partake of these elements. That just as bread and wine nourish our physical bodies, we we pray that you would use these elements to nourish our souls and to strengthen us, to build us up in our faith, our hope, and love. And Lord, we pray that we would receive these with thanksgiving We ask it in Jesus' name.